Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we are. We continue our study. Uh, there's Bibles back there. If you don't have one, you can grab one. If you don't have one at all, it's yours. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 in the Old Testament. We, would do, we have been doing a study called the Gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. We are now in Nehemiah chapter 8. We will continue through this book, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, until we get to chapter 13 in a couple of weeks, and we'll f- complete that. Uh, this summer, we're going to launch a series in the book of Proverbs uh, throughout this, you know, for the summer months, June, uh, July, and August. And then September, unless God directs otherwise, we'll be uh, starting the book, The Gospel According to John, come September. Really excited about that. We went through the Gospel According to Mark in 0809. It really helped uh, uh, the church redefine who we are, our core values, our, our mission statement. So it was a, just walking with Jesus. Uh, it was great. So I'm really looking forward to getting very excited about coming September. So that'll happen um, in September. So that's where we're headed for the next year, year or two anyway, a year and a half. Uh, we usually take some breaks through long books like John, Easter and Christmas. But um, that's where we will be walking with Jesus through that great, great account uh, written by John the Apostle. So. Today, though, we are in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, and last week, we, last two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 7, and we said it was a transitional chapter. The chapter moves, Nehemiah chapter 7 moves from Nehemiah, uh, who was about building bricks, to about, really about being in community. They went from mortar to people, from desolation in the city of Jerusalem, to the repopulation of Jerusalem. So if you've been tracking with us, you know that the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah Um, are about the returning Jews. In Ezra, we saw them return from Babylon to Jerusalem and where they restored the sacred altar and the temple. And now in Nehemiah, the returning exiles are now have rebuilt the burnt walls of the city, have now been rebuilt. And Ezra and Nehemiah, both those books, one book really in the Hebrew, um, begin, both books begin with a building project, and once the building project is completed, Ezra is about the temple, Nehemiah about the walls, once that's been completed, it gives the opportunity for the author and for the people to turn from building to rebuilding and revitalizing and renewing and reforming God's people. This is about the, 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 uh, the renewing and then this wonderful reform that's going on with the people of God. So it goes from building bricks and, and walls and temples to rebuilding and reforming people. Uh, chapter 7, transitional chapter. And last two weeks ago, we saw that in chapter 7, Nehemiah uh, the three, does three quick things. He does, first, he enlists leaders. He says, now that the walls are done, we need to have some people in leadership. He gets Hananiah's brother and Hananiah, two men, feared God, men of integrity. They, they cared about what God wanted, and they were faithful men, and he puts them in charge. You need leadership. Number two, he establishes community. Remember chapter 7, he goes through the genealogy. Who belongs in the, in the city? Who doesn't belong in the city? Who are the priests? Who aren't the priests? He builds community. So he enlists leaders. He builds community. And then it ends in chapter 7 where he encourages giving. The people of God step up to the plate and they give financially to the continued work that God is doing. Rebuilding the walls and reforming the people. And we said, we ended last week saying that they were well aware of the grace of God. And because of the grace of God in their life, they gave generously. It's a good indicator on how much you rely on God's grace. In fact, 2 Corinthians 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul talks about financially given to the church. He does so by pointing to the gospel, to the gospel, how, how good and gracious God was and God is. 
Today, Nehemiah 8, let me try to bring you or imagine the scene for a moment before we look at the scripture of Nehemiah 8. It is tertiary, the seventh month of the sacred year, September, October. The year is 444 B.C. The city, of course, is Jerusalem. The Jewish people have returned to the promised land and what has been coined as the second exodus, returning back a second time. Here in 8, the Jews have traveled from all over Judea, from Judah, I mean, and they have um, populated the city, and this great assembly is about to take place. A wooden platform has been erected in the large square on the east side of the city called the West Gate. Ezra, the priest we have not heard of in about 13 years, steps up to the podium and he's carrying a scroll. And he begins to open God's word. The reading of God's word goes on and on and on and on from dawn until noon. And let me point out without one single complaint. i just pointing it out. They were, all right, no, no, you can't talk back. We have to do that later, okay? I got the mic. No, just kidding. They were eager to catch every word spoken by God through the mouth of the priest. You see, it's the word of God, the scripture says, that formed the world. God spoke. God that formed Israel at Sinai as he called the people to himself and gave them the law. It was God's word to Jeremiah that promised them that they will be returning, that there will be a new exodus and return from exile. Now returned from exiles with the walls rebuilt, the people looked to God's word for reformation, for transformation. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, prayer chapter 17, uh, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth, for thy word is truth. Four headings today. The word of God is open. The word of God is opened reverently. The word of God is taught understandably you see that okay? Okay, I didn't check earlier. The word of God is open reverently. The word of God is taught understandably. The word of God is celebrated joyfully. And finally, the word of God is obeyed promptly. That's where we're at, Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me read verses 1 through 6. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Where President Nixon, no. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. That word commanded is the word instructed, appointed. So I want you to notice that, that the law of Moses, Moses gave it to him, but it was instructed, it was commanded, it was appointed by God. Verse 8, verse 14, verse 18 talks about the law of God. So it was brought through Moses, instructed by God himself to Israel, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. All that understood, we don't know exactly what that means, but it's probably some maybe early teens that they could understand. Verse 3. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. He says it twice. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra described stood on a wooden platform. 
that they had made for the purpose. So I, I think while they were building the wall, they must have, because it only took 52 days, they were building this platform. Maybe Ezra was a short guy like me and needed to be up high, I don't know. But they, they built this, this podium made of wood for that purpose. And beside him stood his 13 men. Uh, I'll go through it quick so you think I know what I'm talking about. Mattatiah, Shema, Anani, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, Mahasiah, and on his right hand, Padiah, Michelle, Milchelhiah, Hashem, if you're looking for names, ladies, here it is, Hashpadana, Zechariah, that's easy, and Meshalem, Meshalem, on his left hand. So he's got this crew with him up there, you see that? And Ezra, verse 5, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Okay? All appropriate responses. Standing before the Lord, raising your hands before the Lord, worshipping the Lord, face to the ground, all appropriate responses. So, okay to raise your hands if you're not catching what I'm saying in worship of the Lord. That's what's going on right there. Now, remember Ezra, who Ezra is. Ezra was a man back in chapter 7 of Ezra when he first came on the scene. He was called to start this religious reform. They had already built the temple. It was years later. God raises him up and he said, look, we need a religious reform. The, the temple's already built. And Ezra comes on the scene in Ezra chapter 7. It says in the scripture that Ezra was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. Tradition says, not scripture, tradition says that he knew the law of Moses by heart. Five books, the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He could write it by heart. It says in scripture that the gracious hand of his God was upon him. So he knew the law. God's hand was gracious and was upon him. The scripture says that Ezra was devoted himself, had devoted himself, set his heart to study and to observe the law of the Lord and, this is in Ezra 7, to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So not only being a disciple, not only studying the word, knowing the word, but he was committed to teaching others the word, right? He's not a guy you want to have Bible drills with. He'd beat you every time. He was committed to personal studies. He was also committed to applying the scriptures to his own life and then looking to apply the scriptures with others as he taught others. Now, our text tells us that it's the first day of the seventh month. Very important. It's like the Jewish um, New Year's. It's the first day of the seventh month was a holy gathering where three major feasts began. The Feast of Trumpets, followed by the Day of Atonement, followed by the festival of booths and tabernacles, which we'll look at. It was a perfect time for the Israelites to gather together to hear the word of God. And as I was studying that, the first thing that came to my mind, as I I think about myself and I think about y'all who will be here, is, isn't it wonderful how God welcomes those who are willing to turn from going down their destructive road and are willing to come back to him. I thought, you know, God is a God of fresh new starts. Some of you may need to hear that today. 
If you're willing to say, I'm done running my own life, doing my own thing, and making a mess of my life, because honestly, if left to myself, I'm a mess, and you say, you know what, but I used to do this, and I used to do that, it's okay. God's calling you home. It's a fresh start. These people open up the Word. It's the brand new year. They're getting ready for the festivals, and they're like, we need to hear from God. Verse 73 of chapter 7, right before that, really sets, the t- sets it. It says, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. Verse 1 of chapter 8, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Now, I don't know if this was just spontaneous. It kind of seems that way. Some commentators say there must have been some sort of like gathering or invitation it just seems like they all just began to come together now the first day usually is the day of the trumpets where the trumpets were blown maybe it was that i don't know but all of a sudden there's this gathering of people thousands upon thousands at the water gate anyone who could understand and together and and nehemiah writes for us they were together to eager eager to hear god's word they were in unity together they were one man Okay? It doesn't mean one person. It means that everybody had one singular thing in mind. They're like, listen, go get Ezra. That's what they said. They gather and they say, go get Ezra. We don't want to hear about what baseball team he likes. We don't want to hear his political views. Go get Ezra and tell him to bring the word of God with him. He's a teacher of the law. Bring the book. Bring the Torah. Bring the Pentateuch. When I read that, and I try to put myself there for a moment, it's almost as if these people are at this concert. You haven't been at a concert yet, and you're so excited about being there. I went to go see Andre Bocelli, uh, I think it was two years ago when he was in Albany. I mean, I was just so excited. I just could not wait. Here's Ezra bringing the Lord, and these people at one gate, they're saying, bring Ezra, bring Ezra. We want to hear the word. There's an anticipatory sense to what's going on. They they want to bring him. Verse 3, he starts reading from dawn until lunch, six hours. Verse 18 tells us that it went on for a week, and it says they didn't just hear the word. Look what it says. It says they listened intentively. They weren't sleeping. They got rest Saturday night to gather on Sunday morning. They didn't fall to the one sitting next to you. All right, it's convicting. We'll move on, okay? But they were awake. They were attentive. And Ezra's up on the wooden platform, verse 4, that they made for that purpose. They could see him. They, they, they could, in fact, there are churches in Scotland that have these pulpits that are 20 or 30 steps straight up. So, the, so the, maybe they got it from here. I don't know. So that the preacher is preaching like really high down on them. I don't know if I could. That would freak me out. I don't like heights as it is. And notice that when he's up there, he's not alone. There's 13 men with him. So they got this Bible conference going on. Ezra stands up, and Ezra has a group of men. He's, he, he's not doing it alone. There's a plurality of leadership. Yes, Ezra is the, the first among equals. He's leading it. But there are men there helping him to understand and to read and to interpret as they get ready to teach the people. That's what we do here. We have, we have a, 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 a plurality of eldership here. Yes, I'm the lead, but there, there's many of us who gather together. And we look at Scripture together. We work out doctrine together. We gather together so that one of us doesn't go down that road. You know the road I'm talking about. You know, you got a bunch of quarters in your pocket. You're waiting for the Haley Comet to come. That road. 
okay? And they're all kind of keeping watch for each other, okay? And that's what's happening here. So they're, they're not only listening intentively, but look what they do. They respond author, author, with authority. Couldn't get that out. They responded authoritatively. When Ezra opened the book, look at verse 5. People honor and said, okay, let's stand. Let's stand and hear the word of God. And what I love about is that what happened in the midst of Ezra is when Ezra opened up the scroll and began to read the word, the people recognized that it was not man who was speaking. That's the point. They recognized that when Ezra opened up the scripture, God was speaking. God was speaking. Ezra praised the great God in verse 6. People lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, truth. Amen and amen. Everyone listened attentively. Everyone responded as one man. They were locked in. They were focused, ready to hear from their great God. They knew who was getting ready to speak. Because behind every word is the authority, the power, the ability or lack of the one who speaks it. You know who has authority in the home when the parents speak and the kids pay them no mind. When God speaks, he speaks as having all authority within himself. He doesn't need anyone. He's not dependent on anyone for some sort of uh, given authority as, as police officers and other people in authority, governors, and, and have, have, they, they're given that authority by the people, supposed to be anyway. Here we see God himself, creator, sustainer, eternal God, the only God who is omnipotent, having all power and all right to prescribe what we should believe and how we are to ask is speaking. And the Jews in Jerusalem knew that the source of God's word was found within himself. God was speaking and their actions of bowing and praising and, 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 and it's just shows us what was really happening. They were reverent because God was speaking. So I guess we can ask this question then. When God's word is read, whether it's here or whether you're at home, do you realize that God Almighty, creator, sustainer, sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God is talking, is speaking, the authority of God's word is God himself. They stood. They were, they were instinctively aware that they needed to hear from God. Derek Kidner in a great commentary says, they stood as if they were instinctively aware they needed to give God royal authority and therefore stand at the reading of scripture. If there's anything I hope that defines us as a people, as a church, it is that we are people of the book. Recently, over the past two months, Pastor Ricky has been putting up scripture verses during interludes with music. Just keep, just keep. We read scripture. We, we read scripture out loud. We put scripture on the screens. Let us be known as people of the book. Now, we don't worship paper. We don't worship the Bible. But we worship the one who reveals himself in scripture. We sang that song. Worship starts with what? Seeing you. Our hearts respond to your revelation, right? That's the song we sang. The only way you and I can know God is if God makes himself known. Now, that may be very simple, but think about that for a minute and its implications. The only way you and I can know God 
as if God makes himself known. All other understandings, all under all other understandings are self-generated. And therefore, the God that you worship, small g, is the God of your own imagination, your own mind, your own philosophy, your own perspective. Knowing God is not about imagination, it's about revelation. So here's the question. Who has the ultimate authority over you? Who has the ultimate authority over you? Are you under the authority of God by being under the authority of his word? This is over me? Or do you throw the Bible and you step on top of it and say, I have authority over it. I will decide what is true and what is not true. In fact, when the scripture speaks and I'm not really fond of what it's saying about me, I think I'll just skip that passage. Or do we say, no, let's be like the Israelites. Their reformation began when they acknowledged reverently that God was speaking through his word. They opened it reverently. And the word was also taught understandably. Look, at me, look with me at verse 7 and 8. Got all the fellow's names. I'm not going to read it again. And then it says in verse 8 that the Levites helped. Let me get that. Let me get that right here. Verse 8. They read from the book. Actually, at the end of verse 7. Hannah, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. NIV made it clear. So they're reading they're, uh, and, and, they're, and, and the people are helping them understand and the Levites are going to help them while they, look what it says, remained in their places. Most Bible commentaries say they did two things at least. Number one, they translated from Aramaic to the Hebrew. From the Hebrew to the Aramaic. Because if you remember, they're, they're coming from Babylon. Aramaic was probably what was spoken there. So the Levites, the, 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 the Jewish leaders, took the Hebrew text and translated it into the Aramaic so that they could understand what was being said. But secondly, they also, uh, which is the word uh, understanding or making it clear, is the word exposition or being explained. So they not only explained it in their language, but they spelled out the applications so that the listeners who heard the word of God, who heard the scriptures being taught, learned how to flesh out God's truth for their lives in that day. That's exposition, explaining the passage. It's called good hermeneutics, for those of you who maybe never heard that before. Hermeneutics is the art and science of how to study scripture, how to come to the interpretation of scripture. There's only one. What was the original author saying? And what were the originals hearers hearing? What was God trying to communicate in that day? Not that we get it right all the time, but that's what we're trying to do. And we got to do things like unlock language barriers. We have to interpret scripture. We're going to be doing Proverbs come in the spring, excuse me, in the summer. Well, how you interpret a narrative and how you interpret a proverb are two different methods. Proverbs are not promises. As people want to claim promises in Proverbs, they're not. They're principles. So that's a whole different, you've got to figure that stuff out as you look and try to understand Scripture. You don't read a narrative as the same way you would read poetry. You don't read the Psalms in the same way you would read a historical narrative. Right? You've got to know what parallelism is. I didn't make that up, and I'm not trying to be smart. I'm simply saying there's a thing called Hebrew parallelism. You can look it up and read it for yourself to try to figure out the Psalms, try to figure out Proverbs. That's important. A good Bible teacher will determine the meaning of the text to the original author. And what Ezra is doing is Ezra is speaking 
And Ezra is explaining to the language that they understand it and then breaking it down to them and saying, this was given to Moses, this was given to the people in Sinai, but this is what it means for us today. This is what we need to do today. And that's what it means when it says, gave them sense so that the people understood the meaning. It's called contextualizing the scripture. It's taking the unchanging truth of God's word and making it understandable and meaningful to the culture in which they were in. We do the same thing here. There's one interpretation, many applications. He's speaking to a people that has just been called out of the Chaldean culture from Babylon. They had multiple gods. They, they worshipped astrology. So he had to deal with all that. And here he was declaring and teaching the word. It was shaping and forming and reforming so that people understood that. I love this in verse 7. It says, he was doing all this, contextualizing the scripture. In verse 7 it says, the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and catch that phrase, while the people remained in their places. Does that sound familiar to you? It's what we call here the air war and the ground war. Air war, ground war. We didn't make it up. It came from a church in Seattle, uh, Mars Hill in Seattle. They do an air war and ground war, okay? We have the preaching of God's word, the declaration, the expositional preaching here done on Sunday morning is the air war where everybody gathers and hears the word of God. It is the main diet of teaching, doctrinal teaching, declaring the truth of God's word. It's done by the plural, the plurality of us. Perry will be here next week. Ricky did a great job. Bill preaches, does a great job. Scott's going to be doing some more preaching. So we have, we have multiple guys preaching, expounding, teaching the scripture. I realize there are some churches that downplay the preaching on Sunday morning all over our country. But it's foolish and not biblical. What you find in the scripture is the preeminence and the prominence of the teaching of scripture in the congregation. Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostle Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching from the word. It's going to come a time, he tells Timothy, that people will not endorse sound doctrine. But having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths of blood moons. Crazy. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. 1 Timothy 4 Until I come, Timothy, Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation, to teaching. As long as I am here and all the other pastor elders agree, this book and the expositional preaching of this book will remain absolutely essential in the forming teaching of the life of God's people here at King's Chapel. It's not about entertainment. It's about not about telling ears. It's about proclaiming the gospel through the written, written word of God, which the Bible says... The word who became flesh dwelt among us full of grace and truth. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And what's so cool about this, it's not just the gathering on Sunday morning, although that's important. Look what the text says. The congregation, because there's there's a ground war going to happen. It's not just air war. He says the Levites helped them understand it where they were. I envision it 
They went down either they were on the platform or not, but they went into the congregation. You could see these teachers of the law and these expositors going into this large gathering and sitting around with smaller communities saying, hey, let's talk about what was just said. Let me, let me explain it to you. So after the air war, there's a ground war. There's application. Now, what does that mean? Listen, let me tell you what it means. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. Let me break it down to you. That was going on. Air war, ground war. And then look what happened after that, verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, right, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why did he say that? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Listen, God's word is opened. God's word penetrated their hearts. God's word was not given just for so we could be great theologians and argue our points. It's not really even about information itself as if we're going to win some sort of prizes on Jeopardy. God's word is not just for intellectual information. God's word is for transformation to see Jesus Christ. It's not to win a Bible drill. It's to know and love and treasure Jesus. The word of God is the unveiling of who God is. And when we come face to face to that, we come face to face with the holiness, and the greatness, and the awesomeness, the majestic glory of God. We're broken. Isaiah 6, all over scripture, broken. And it points to the need of a savior. Ezra reads, the, Levite, the Levites explain the community's first response was conviction, brokenness, grief, weeping, mourning. They begin to weep because they have sinned. They begin to weep because they knew they have not done what they should do. They have weeped because they were neglecting the word of God. Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The ministry of scripture causes them to see the beauty, the glory, the majesty of God and the ugliness and wickedness of their sin. In a book called A God-Sized Vision, Revival Stories That Stretch and Stir by Hanson and Woodbridge. They quote a Presbyterian minister in that day. It was in 1907. It was the Korean revival that was going on. Dr. William Blair was there and he says this. He says, The prayer sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne during a prayer, prayer, prayer at, uh, in 1907 in Korea. It was not many, but one. There's a lot of people there, but it sounded as one. Born of one spirit, lifted to one Father above all. Just as the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place and of one accord. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound as of the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And he says, God is not always in the whirlwind. Neither does he always speak in a still small voice. He came to uh, Korea that night with the sound of weeping. As the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep, and in the, whole, and in the moment, the whole audience was weeping, end quote. Reverend G. Lee, he was there too. He says, after prayer, confessions were called for, and immediately... Prayer, confession of sin, and immediately said the Spirit of God seemed to descend upon the audience. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fist in a perfect agony of conviction. So I'm not sure what background you came from, but let me just say this. This is not a bunch of crazy people falling to the ground barking like dogs. Okay. 
or stuck to the floor, as I've heard, with Holy Spirit glue. These are cognizant, carefully understanding the holiness of God that have been broken by their sin. That's what's going on here. And let me tell you, when you come face to face with the holiness of God, when you come face to face with the, your enormously and immensely repulsive sin that is against God, but you have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the one who paid for those sins, the one who paid the price by his substitutionary death on the cross for your sin, your mourning, your brokenness, your weeping over his Glory, your brokenness and your sin will turn to great joy. Do you hear that? Ezra opens the word of God reverently. They listen attentively. He interprets it contextually. They respond appropriately. We're broken. But then they're sent away joyfully. Look what it says, verse 10. He says to them, listen, go your way. Eat the fat. That's steak. I looked it up. So I'm like, what do you mean eat the fat? It means eat the best chops. I love that. But anyway, eat the best fat. Drink sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing. Be generous. Be joyful. Be generous to those who don't have. For this day is holy. It's separate to the Lord. Do not grieve. Underline this in your Bible. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people down saying, listen, Be quiet, chill, relax, have a drink, have something to eat, make a steak. For this day is holy. I added all that, but it's in there. Do not be grieved. So weeping is important. Weeping over brokenness over sin is necessary. But let me tell you, family, it's not the final message for us today. Nehemiah, assisted by the Levites, Ezra, together convinced the people to stop mourning and start celebrating. When God's word leads us to see our sin, brings us to the place of repentance, turning from sin, it should ultimately bring us great joy. For the same word that wounds is the same word that heals. Jeremiah 15, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Here's the deal. Grief over sin and joy in God's forgiveness are not far apart. Someone once said, soft words produce hard people. Soft words produce hard people. Don't want to deal with sin. Don't want to deal with brokenness. Don't want to deal with things in my life. Produces hard people. But hard words, I got to deal with this. Hard words produce soft people. The God who convicts of sin is the God of grace, is the God of mercy, it's conviction. It's part of the sanctifying process of God. Becoming more like him. Now remember, this is the day of the Jewish New Year. It's in preparation for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was 10 days later. They were getting ready to celebrate the Day of Atonement. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about confession and repentance and the sacrificial system, the Day of the Holy of Holies, where the people would come and gather and they would be the high priest in the most holy of holies. They would sacrifice and they would be forgiven of their sins and God would deal with them with grace and mercy for the following year. That's happening soon. And as they prepare, it's called the 10 Days of Repentance. And they're getting ready. And I think what's happening is their acknowledgement of their sin, but, they're, but Nehemiah, and they're saying, listen, God is faithful. God will provide forgiveness. 
the feasts in the Old Testament, if you read about the feasts in the Old Testament and then them working out those feasts, there's a lot of joy and celebration in the feast of God. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of joy. Because the feasts were pointing to God's provision. The feasts were pointing to God's goodness. The feasts were, were, were pointing the people back to God's salvation, to God's uh, kindness to them and God's grace to them, God's salvation, his deliverance, his redemption, and it brought joy. Joy is strength when you know your sins are forgiven. Joy is strength when you know God's freely given you justification being made right with him. So what brings you great joy? What brings me great joy? Does the truth, listen, if you've been a Christian for a couple of years or longer, does the joy or knowing that you deserve hell, eternal punishment, just from what you did today, yet God in his grace and mercy and kindness of nothing you have done has freely forgiven you, adopted you, and brought you into his family through the blood of Jesus Christ, does that bring you, still bring you joy today? I'm here to remind you that it should. What we deserve, we don't get. What we deserve was given to Jesus. What we deserve was brought on Jesus' back. He paid the penalty and price. And now we are reconciled, forgiven, adopted into the family of God. That should bring us great joy. As I was studying it this week, you know what scripture came to mind? You don't, I'm going to tell you. Luke chapter 10. Great passive scripture. Jesus appoints 72 men. He's like, listen, go ahead of me. Um, preach the gospel. Declare the gospel. You guys go ahead. I'll meet you up there. And he tells them, listen, the harvest is plentiful. Labors are few, few. And whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's before them. Heal the sick. Preach the gospel. The kingdom of God has now come upon you. Let them know. And when the 72 returned to Jesus, the Bible says they had great joy. Right? And they came to Jesus and it's like, you're not going to believe this. He's like, I-, I believe it. Demons were subjected to us. Like we were preaching the gospel and we had this authority and this power. Jesus obviously not shocked because that's what he sent them out to do. He said, listen, I-, I get all that. I was there when Satan fell from the sky. Luke chapter 10. I was there when all this happened. I get that. And then he says them, behold... I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's be honest, family. The excitement of coming back on a whirlwind tour of preaching the gospel and having that success would bring me great joy. I I hope it would bring you great joy too. Right? And I, and I don't believe that Jesus is saying, you know, don't stop smiling. You know, Jesus is urging his disciples in this passage that their power, that, that the ministry and the power is not the major blessing. It, it, it's not the, the ultimate response for joy. But I don't think Jesus was saying, um, listen, I want you guys to stop laughing, stop smiling. This is not funny. You should have no joy in this. You know, I gave you that power and all these demons that were, 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 were uh, taking captive the people that I created for my glory. And you know that paraplegic children that were healed and they jumped into their mother's arms that brought you God. Knock it off. Don't smile at that. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. Don't be happy, right? He was saying, listen, you need to be careful. You need to be careful. You need to know what the primary rejoicing is that takes precedent over everything. And that is that you've been forgiven and that your names are written in 
the book of heaven. The real blessing is to possess eternal life and to be enrolled as a permanent citizen of glory. That's what he's saying. So ministry has its privileges and access to God's power is exciting, lots of joy, but the real cause of joy is that you have been forgiven, you've been reconciled, you have eternal life, you will be with him not only in heaven but in the new heavens and a new earth, Revelations 21. That's why. See, well, what's the purpose of that? What was he trying to, because the disciples, although they had that great opportunities and they should be excited about it, the reality is some of them were going to be murdered soon and some of them were going to be persecuted soon because eternal joy is not subjected to outward circumstances but the inward reality that although we deserve eternal torment and suffering, we have received eternal life. And the promise of eternal pleasure in the presence of our King and God in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to change. Make sure your eternal joy is centered on the gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthian church, and things went really bad for Paul. We went through Acts. We know how bad it went. He says, we are afflicted in every way. We are crushed, but not Done. You know what he said? That we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And he tells the church, do not lose heart. I know you're going through a lot. Don't lose heart. Though outwardly you're wasting away, inwardly inwardly you are being renewed every day. And then he says this. This is unbelievable. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal Weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Family, I'm going to tell you that Paul did not mean, Paul did not mean that the momentary affliction means it's going to be a week or two weeks. It's going to go, it could be a lifetime, but in comparison to billions upon billions upon billions of years in eternal bliss in the new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth with our great good God and kingdom, it's momentary. He didn't say it's light because there's no pain. He's saying it's light in comparison to the weight of glory that is, that is promised to the people of God where Jesus died, Jesus rose, the first fruit of the resurrection. We will be with him in eternity that although it is momentary, it is in comparison to eternity. Although it is light, it may be heavy, but in comparison to the weight of glory. That's what he's saying. Nehemiah and Ezra tell the people, stop weeping over your sin. Don't lose heart. God is good. God is faithful. God will provide atonement. No matter the circumstance, joy comes by knowing God, knowing God's love and knowing God's forgiveness. So go your way, eat a steak, drink some wine, be generous, send portions to people who don't have. Now look what, look what happened in verse 12. Did that verse 12 on there? Yeah. Um, and all the people went their way to eat and drink to send portions to make great rejoicing because, catch that, because, what? They understood the words that were declared to them. Okay? So, the ghost town goes to celebrating. The boom boxes are coming out. The barbecues are getting lit. You know what I mean? The steaks are being brought out. This celebration, there is joy because they understood the word that was spoke to them. They understood the explanation of, explanation of scripture. Family, listen. This Bible is about Jesus. Some people think it's a Bible that, you know what, we read these great stories of these heroes of the faith and we're told to follow their example, that it's a book of virtue. It's not a book of virtue, it's a book of gospel. Okay, there's a big difference. They say, well, look at King David. I was talking about that this week with somebody. Look at King David. He took those five stones and he defeated Goliath and they say, you know what, face your stone, face your giants, get those rocks, be of courage. 
Well, David was also a liar, murderer, adulterer, and a schemer. So uh, you want to be encouraged or you want to be a lying, scheming, adulterer? I'm not really sure, but I would say that, you know what? It's not about David. It's about Jesus. So David points to Jesus because I'm the guy in the sideline scared to death of my giant and I don't want to face him because I don't have the courage, but Jesus does. And Jesus took the stone, faced death, conquered sin, death, and hell, rose victorious over that. And when I'm in him, I'm strong. I can do that. I can do that. Dr. Keller writes, it's not a story of moral exemplars, Scripture. It's not a story of moral exemplars. It's a record of God's intervening grace into the lives of those who don't deserve it not seeking it, who continually resist it, and who even don't even appreciate it, even after they've been saved by it. That's me. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's that simple, but it's absolutely essential. Jesus himself said to a bunch of Old Testament Bible thumpers who knew the scriptures, who were fighting. Can you imagine? Can you imagine saying, Jesus, let me teach you theology? Um, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me explain the Bible. That's what was going on. And Jesus said, let me tell you something, Old Testament scholars. You study the scriptures thinking that in them you will find eternal life. You'll find joy. Yet these scriptures testify about me. And that includes Nehemiah chapter 8, which brings us to our last point. They obeyed promptly. Chapter 8, verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers, the houses of the people, with the priests and the Levites came together. To Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They, they wanted more. And they found in it written that the Lord had commanded by Moses and that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches and olive, uh, branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Verse 16. So the people went out, brought them, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Now, they're all over the place. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths for, them, for, for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And... There was very great rejoicing. Verse 18, day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Reading the scripture, we're like, we we followed, we're listening, we're tracking with you, and then they come and they read the law, like, oh, well, that we haven't done yet. So I'm not, I haven't completely heard and, and responded, and now I need to do that. And that's, that, that speaks to me because I don't always respond promptly when I hear the Scripture, right? I mean, there's one thing to follow the Lord, and there's another thing to obey Him promptly. When He speaks, we, we move. When he, when he speaks to our hearts, when he, when he shows us things, we respond, right? I mean, that's not always the case for me. So they hear that we're supposed to do this festival called the Festival of Booths or the Tabernacles. Now... What that was is, as he says, they build these shelters, these lean-tos. I grew up uh, right outside the city, Rockland County, where I spent most of my time, a large Hasidic community. Um, And I used to walk with my younger brother uh, through the communities, and we would see these booths set up on the porches. So they had houses to dwell in, but they would build these these lean-tos with these branches, and they would sit and they would live in those for these days as a reminder of God's faithfulness of the time in which he 
delivered them and rescued them out of Egypt. So this festival of booze where they would live in these branch houses uh, really taught three things, I think, to the people at least. Number one, it, it helped the Israelites look back in those 40 years of wandering in the desert, how God provided for them and how he, 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 he had them build shelters and they, and they were cared for and they were provided for and they were to remember all that God had done. And then it was a time that they were to look around because this was festival, the end of the festival of harvest, that God has provided now. He, he's cared for us today. So it's a look back, it's a look around, and then it's a look forward. They, they, it's a way to say, God, you are good, and now, because of your goodness in the past, we'll trust you in the future, right? I mean, how many times do you look in the back and go, you know what, God's been faithful to me. Why am I seem so, uh, why, did I, why do I not have faith today? God has done this, God has done that, God, God has moved this so much in my life, I need to trust him in the future. That's what that was all about, to trust God in the future. They had the walls built. God said, listen, <laughs> those walls will come down with trumpets. You know the story. So God's saying, look, trust in me. Keep your eyes on me. So it was, a, it was a time of looking back, looking around, and looking forward. But I will tell you this. When they responded, and they said, oh, we have to do this. Let's do this. Let's respond in obedience. Look at verse 17. It says, there was very... Yeah verse, yeah, verse 17. And there was very great rejoicing. When you obey Scripture, when you listen to the voice of God, there is a deep satisfaction that you've done the right thing. We're called to respond. James 1. Don't be just doers of the word, be hearers. Don't deceive yourself. Right? If we're truly people of the book, and it has authority in our life, then we'll live by the book. D.L. Moody said this really well. He said this, Joy flows right on through trouble. Joy flows on through the dark. Joy flows in the night as well as in the day. Joy flows all through persecution and opposition. It is an unceasing fountain bubbling up in the heart, a secret spring the world cannot see and doesn't know anything about. The Lord gives his people perpetual joy when they walk in obedience to him, end quote. There's a myth out there that says that God is out just to make my life miserable. By giving me things to do, by giving guardrails in my life, his law laid down for me, it's either restricting me so that I'm unhappy or it's unattainable. So God has these laws for us, his will for us, and it's sort of like this carrot dangling. And he gets such a kick, he's laughing up on his throne, falling over on his chair, watching Lou try to obey. Or... I have my will for you, and you know what? I see you smiling over there. Get back over here. That's a myth. That's a lie. That's just not accurate. God is not a killjoy. All right? God is not a killjoy. And and we can go for a lot of different reasons why that's true, but just look at the text. I love the order that we just looked at together. They read God's word that brokenness over their sin, there's forgiveness in the Day of Atonement that they're looking forward to, there is joy, there is forgiveness, and then they stress obedience. That's the difference between every religion, every religion, every philosophy known to man in comparison to the gospel. Religion says first comes obedience. 
Through my obedience, when I obey, when I do, God forgives me, God receives me, God loves me, and hopefully through all that, I'll find some joy in that. The gospel is Jesus obeyed completely. He fulfilled the law completely. He died the death I should have died in my place, and therefore, because of Christ, his work, I'm forgiven, I am loved, I am accepted. All of that has been done for me, and therefore, I can obey with joy. Now, track with me, please. A couple more minutes. I don't want you to lose this. True and lasting obedience to the will of God can produce real joy only if my obedience is the result of the work of Christ on my behalf. You got that? True and lasting obedience to the will of God can produce real joy if Only if my obedience is the result of the work of Christ on my behalf. If my obedience becomes for me the means by which God will forgive and love me, the joy of the Lord will not be my strength. The order is very important. Without the joy of Christ's work, his atoning sacrifice on my behalf, in my place, absorbing the Father's wrath where I should be, he was, and the work of forgiveness... Without the joy of Christ, the will of God is drudgery. But to the believer who's strengthened by the joy of the Lord through the work of Christ, the will of God is nourishment, strength, joy. The order is very important. And as we close, there's something that all these festivals point to. As I said, the festivals to teach us and to teach Israel that God is the one who initiates this relationship with his people, right? The festivals remind us that God is the one who called Abraham, the pagan, out of the pagan land. God is the one who redeemed Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. God is the one who provided for them in the wilderness. God was the one who rescued them from the Egyptian army as he opened up the Red Sea and he allowed the army to go through. The Israel people go through and the, and the army just got swallowed up and he brought them out of slavery into captivity. All this was done before the law was given. Why? Because that's the gospel. God in his great love, his infinite mercy, his unmatched patience chose in love to initiate a relationship with you by becoming a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. He knew that we are wicked and could never live as we ought to by his law. But he cannot just let sin prevail without punishment. So he chose to live a life, perfect life that we did not live, we could not live in total obedience without sin. Obeyed the law. He chose to die the death that we should have died. He paid the penalty for our sins. And three days later, we celebrated last week the resurrection of Jesus. He conquered sin. He conquered death and descended into the heavens. And let me tell you, on the cross... The Lord Jesus Christ took our place in what is called the great exchange by Martin Luther called it that way. But it's scripture. All your sin, all your violation of the law, all the ways in which you do not follow God's ways. All of that, all your sin was put on Jesus. He suffered and he died and he was punished for your sin and for my sins. His righteousness was given to you That's the exchange. My sin went on Jesus. His righteousness was given to me. 2 Corinthians says, God made him, the Father made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become a sin offering 
so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. And when we respond in faith and when we trust Jesus, when we recognize our sin and His perfect sacrifice, He regenerates the heart. We become a new regenerate person. He gives us a new spirit, His spirit. A new will, a new mind, a new identity, a new family called the church, a new purpose, a new meaning in life. No longer ruled by a new authority, by an old authority, but by a new authority. And our name is written in God's book. You spend eternity with Christ who took away our sin, reconciled us, made us right with him. It's not something we brag about, it's something we rejoice in. It's not something that we pat ourselves on the back, but it's everything we sing and celebrate about here. That's where our joy is found. This book of gospel, open it, read it. It's God's word to you. Listen to when God speaks. Let him show you your brokenness and your sin. Let it tell you of the wonders of God's grace, kindness, mercy, and forgiveness in Christ. Understand that the gospel is something that has been done for you. Receive its gift and respond with joyful gratitude and appreciation of God's abounding love. And then, of course, go. Hear the voice of God. Respond in obedience to Him, His will, and love others. Love Him, love others by declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Not to be received, but because you already are. The word was open reverently. They responded properly it was explained so they could understand it it's about jesus they left joyfully and because of all that christ has done they obeyed promptly have you ever ever put it in that order if not i hope you do today i hope today you say you know what i'm tired of running and doing trying to accept god as forgiveness for me for something i have done you cannot do it we respond in obedience to him because of his love for us a big difference between the two. Trust Jesus today. And maybe you're a Christian here today and you haven't opened God's word. I pray that you do and get back and just regularly reading and seeking God's face, hearing his voice, demonstrating and declaring the gospel to others as well. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy toward us. God, we want to thank you right now together as your family for your written word. We would be lost without it. We wouldn't understand anything. We would not know you or be able to come to know you. But because of your word, Father, we can. And because of your word who became flesh and dwelt among us, we can be saved from our sins. We can be rescued from from, uh, death, sin, and hell. We can be forgiven of our sins because of our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his atoning sacrifice. Thank you for the resurrection of the grave. And thank you for not leaving us as orphans, but sending your Holy Spirit to dwell among us, to open our eyes, to see our sin, to see the glory of Christ, to turn and repent from our sins and to walk with him. Father, we pray that that joy would overflow and not only in obedience to you, but in declaring and demonstrating the gospel to every living creature we come in contact with. Loosen our lips for your glory, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.